Welcome, everybody. This is Dr. Scott at LA Not So Confidential. I am here back from the Thanksgiving holidays of days and days of eating. Dr. Shiloh, how are you doing? Same. Oh, my gosh. And then you see the leftovers and you're like, well, I got to finish that off. Why do we do that to ourselves? Because it would be wrong not to. <sighs> I guess I just need to start fresh starting tomorrow. Get it out of my house. <laughs> well, what made it easy is that we were guests at your house and had an incredible True. meal that we didn't have yes. to come home and, and feel that way, that guilt. And thank you for all of the wonderful dishes and all of the wonderful quality time spent with your family. It was really fun. Yes. Thank you for the red velvet cake. It was delicious. I still have some, actually. It turned out pretty good, I have to say. If anybody wants a recipe, let me know. So we have a little bit of housekeeping. We have a fantastic Patreon holiday party scheduled for December 17th. We're yes. going to be talking about the new changes coming to Patreon in 2023, which will include several different tiers. And we'll speak more about that. And also just a heads up, I want all of our listeners from around the world. And amazingly, we have several. We're going to make a better effort in the future to post the different time frames and for our friends in Australia always seem to miss because oh, there's a day difference. So we will, we, stuff. yes, we will promise to make an effort for our virtual live streams to get you guys in on the mix because we'd love to have you. So let me do a little episode recap as I jump us back in here. Our full, our last full episode was 117. So that was November's vintage episode where we covered the Babes of Inglewood case. And this case occurred back to 1937. And the Babes of Inglewood were three little girls who went missing in broad daylight while playing at the community park. And not only is this case about a brutal vintage murder, but it's also very likely, you know, one of the earliest documented wrongful convictions of a really high profile crime. So yeah, interesting story. Please go back and, and listen to that if you did not catch it. And then the episode after that, before this one was episode 118, which was the recording that we got from the True Crime Podcast Festival when we did our presentation with the lovely doctors from Women in Crime. And we did not put a caveat at the top because we honestly just wanted to get you something during the holiday to not skip another week. But we know the audio was less than optimal. And we tried everything we could. Jason, our editor, did his magic and... <laughs> It was still yeah. of that quality. So thank you so much for your patience, bearing with us. We just wanted to release a little something and not leave you waiting two weeks over the, the Thanksgiving holiday. So that was our really looking at a topic that we've looked at before on the show with false victimization, but doing it through the lens of the Sherry Papini case and talking about some of the psych issues there. And then also looking at behaviorally with Dr. Amy and Dr. Megan some of the criminogenic factors. So it was really fascinating. I wish you guys could have heard it a little bit better, but yeah, check it out if if you can stand the audio. Yeah, we might be able to. I would say it's probably one of our episodes that you don't want to listen to on headphones or earbuds because the balance the of the sound out. is really bad. Yeah, yeah, it's in and out. So you really can't control. And we tried compressing it as much as possible, but I think speakers does it a little bit better because it may take out some of the, the jarringness of the sound. But what was next? Oh yeah, we had, what are we listening to this month? That's your new oh. thing that you're adding in every week. I love that. So what are we, no, what are you watching and listening just, to? Just when we're doing our documentary reviews. Um, oh, okay. So <laughs> this weekend we binged Wednesday on Netflix, which was awesome. great. 
fun for the whole family to get into that. There's so many true crime documentaries that have dropped lately. I feel like we're going to have a ton more to look forward to next year as we do this monthly. The only one that I started was The Vatican Girl, which I think we had a table discussion at Thanksgiving about. So I've watched one episode of that. And if you go back and look at our episode list, of all the ideas, I actually have this on there from years ago that I wanted to cover this story. So interested to jump into this documentary. What am I listening to? Season two of Santa, maybe a criminal just dropped. So of course I'm listening to that. Episode one's fantastic already. And then I'm listening to a podcast called What's Up Doc. And of course that would catch my eye, but it is a woman from the UK and she reviews true crime documentaries with guests. And we may have a little something in the works with her for you guys. Which so I would so cool. check it out. <laughs> yeah, great. It's a great, great podcast. Yeah, what about um, you? I wanted to go back to your sharing about watching Wednesday because I oh. wanted to comment a bit. I've only seen one episode. I've really enjoyed it. I think it's such a great idea. And I want, I mean, just not to veer off subject on this, but it's a fascinating phenomenon to see how fans of a show can turn on actors. And mm. one of the things that's happening in that is the character of Gomez is played by a real Hispanic actor this time. I mean, well, well Julia as well. But Luis yeah. Guzman actually looks a lot like the original drawing that how the yes. how Gomez was intended to look. And the judgment on his looks is really surprising from social media. Wow. Like it's, it's like, I just, I almost, I feel badly for him. He, I mean, I'm sure he's probably made of stronger stuff than I am and is not affected by it. I hope he's not, but it's really bordering on cruel. Like there's just That's no need to make the comments about his, his looks in that way. Isn't that interesting when, when shows are done that are either, you know, reboots of something or an adaptation from a book and it's not exactly the same how there is that backlash. There is. I mean, I think that people, I mean, I certainly know that the wonders of the brain allow us to cast and produce the books that we read in our minds. So we right. have a certainly a way that we expect it to look, but, you know, shows are being rebooted all the time. People get angry. People are so up in arms now about more diverse casting, even in mm -hmm. fantasy shows. It's like, okay, you don't have a problem with a white chick who has three dragons and she's impervious to fire, but now you're pissed off that there are people of color that are oh, in that Lord. world too like come on anyway yeah <laughs> that's my soapbox what else am i watching i am watching a show called reboot it's very oh, funny reboot. it is bringing like the stars of a hit sitcom back 15 years later to reboot the series and it's pretty well written and funny and sort of a clash of generations which is very uh, good brooklyn 999 dan and i never watched it so we're continuing to marathon those half hour episodes they're totally yeah. fun and absurd it's like that sort of parks and rec and 30 rock type vibe and then also since we've been driving a lot for the holiday we have been marathoning two podcasts by the frangela duo which is francis collier and Angela, I'm going to blank on her last name. I'm so sorry, Angela. But you guys, if you want some side splitting humor and really incise political commentary, check out Frangela because they are <laughs> fantastic. They have a show called Idiot of the Week that just will blow your mind. Like they do an in-depth, hilarious analysis of like just some of the dumbest stuff. Of course, a lot of those come from Florida, but hey, you know, Florida. Oh, okay. Man so they're just like news stories. Well. Got it. Yes. Yes. News stories. 
Yeah, so, yeah actually, so Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Detective Diaz is my inspiration for Samantha Strong's character in Santa Media She's Criminal. wonderful. She <laughs> She's wonderful. a mix of me, Dr. Shiloh, Officer Shiloh, and Detective Diaz, so. <laughs> I was going to say it's Angela V. Shelton. So Frangela is Francis ah. and Angela, Angela V. Shelton. Anyway, so we're doing a doc review this time. And so far, you know, up till now, we've really kind of pursued the review and discussion of short length documentaries for this monthly episode. And we found a huge sort of treasure trove of both existing pieces, as well as stories that are new to the audience or new to us and suggested by audience members. Like we've gotten great suggestions, so thank you. But the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries, now in its third season, is just continuing to provide a lot of inspiration for our dissection and review. The final episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 3, Adducted by a Parent, completely adheres to the title description and presents a very tight 40-minute narrative split into two stories that are tragic and still unsolved. In this episode, the audience meets two separate parents, each with their own story of a spouse that ripped their biological children or child away from them. And through interviews with these parents looking for their kids, we learn how failed marriages with people that they thought that they could trust would lead to such awful situations. And what I particularly love about these two examples is a clear distinction in the motivation for these two perpetrators. And while Unsolved Mystery avoids being too definitive about the motivations, there's plenty of information dropped that allows you, the audience member, to make a very well informed inference. So what is it that stands out about this for me? It is that we're presented with two examples of parental abduction, but both with different genders of spousal right. perpetrators and clear distinction in the motives. I, I really like that. Like, I think that there's probably mm -hmm. a lot to pull apart as a memory, like, oh, well, I think this is going on. But instead of telling the same story twice, they really are shifting perspectives really nicely. So in one, a former dream husband just completely spirits his kids away to another country, another identity. And the other story is that of a woman who abducts her toddler son along with her newfound and clearly problematic husband. Yes, I, I loved it for those reasons as well. And also, can we just say like, good job to Unsolved Mysteries for the level of diversity in this entire season of stories. Absolutely. I mean, they, I feel like they really chose stories that represent a huge swath of individuals impacted by crime in this country. And so just this episode alone has a really like a great deal of cultural and religious diversity that actually play into the stories, which was super surprising and super interesting because, you know, the first episode kind of opens with this white woman as a victim, the mom, but then from there on out, it's just, there's so much diversity attached to these, these stories yeah. and really interesting factors. Well, what are you, you know, in viewing this and prepping for today, what are some of the psychological issues that sort of kind of popped out for you that were illuminated as, you know, being very prominent? I mean, what's the first thing that you thought of when watching yeah. this particular documentary? You know, I, I definitely get the vibe of some of that high conflict divorce stuff that we talked about with your friend Virginia on our live stream, where the children are simply used as pawns and to punish the other parent by engaging in these actions. But I mean, I feel like both of these stories just really, really went to the next level where you're going beyond that. There's there's personality disorder issues going on. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, some clear narcissism. There's, you know, you even start to wonder if there's some delusions on some parts of the parents. It's just, as we get into it, I think we'll touch on it more, but that's what jumped out to me because we get a glimpse of how these people sort of portrayed themselves prior to having children and with their spouses and then the turn after they felt wronged. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So let's talk about this whole, how this issue is presented legally in the legal system, but understanding that we're only talking about from California because each state is going to have their own version of it, right? I think we'll just give an example. Each state has their own version as we as it unfolds in these stories, each country has its own version and you don't have the rights in some places that you would hear. And certainly I think when we covered, I just killed my father, remember all the issues with child custody and abduction that happened just across state lines in in the United States. So we're pulling this just from California Penal Code. This is looking at child abduction and an overview states, quote, child abduction is defined as the malicious taking, enticing away, keeping, withholding, or concealing of any child with the intent to detain or conceal that child from their legal custodian when the persons involved in this act do not have legal right or custody of the child. Child abduction is most commonly committed by parents, step-parents, and other family members of the child who do not hold rights of legal custody to the child. Now, the way that this is then interpreted is that there has to be a custody order that is followed and two parents can have joint custody and you can't just because you have joint custody does not mean you can take that child and leave with that child. There has to be some understanding between the two parents that that's going to happen or rights have to be given up, something like that. Well, it's usually all spelled out, right? Like in that agreement, in that a custody agreement? As much or as little as the parents decide. So there doesn't, there does not have to be an agreement for custody. The default agreement when there is no agreement is that you just have 50-50 custody and you guys figure it out. It's an unwritten agreement between you guys. Now that never works out well, or very rarely works out well, and it can work out well for a while and then not so much later on. So usually parents are advised to make it as absolutely detailed as possible because when that police officer gets to the house, when someone's complaining about it, the cop is going to say, okay, show me the court document and they're going to read it and interpret it and see if someone's violating it or not. So I go through this with clients all the time, you know, making sure that they get their needs and they're written out as much as possible. But going back to this, this definition of child abduction, just because you do have some sort of legal custody over the child doesn't mean you can just make these decisions and take off with your child without the other approval of the parent. Right. There has to be agreement there, despite the level of tension that may or may not exist between the two parents. The first story is that of Rebecca Downey, and she's introduced as the mother of two biological children, Amina and Bilal, who were both abducted by their father, Ahmed, in 2014. And in this, what I really consider to be, well, they're both heartbreaking stories. It just, these are, aside from all the other tragic stories that Unsolved Mysteries touches on, these stories really punch me because there is no resolution. It's just all hanging, completely hanging. Most likely with the children still alive, most likely. But 
Anyway, Amina and Bilal were abducted by their father, Ahmed, in 2014. And Rebecca shares how she met her now ex-husband, Ahmed Kandil. Her story is that of a med school graduate into a professional career as a physician. While in school, she meets Ahmed and she describes how their friendship that was initially born of many common interests slowly transitions into a romance and then a marriage with two kids and what she thought were pretty closely aligned values systems. His career was in finance and he had some moderate success, but with the 2008 financial crisis, his prospects declined pretty rapidly. But by now, Rebecca is a working physician. So mm -hmm. she is the breadwinner and making a good income for the part of the country that they live in. And the dynamic starts to shift. So Rebecca and a family friend really assert in this episode that Ahmed's behaviors and mood changed significantly after his financial outlook shifted. She describes him as becoming increasingly withdrawn with a noticeable decrease in the quality of communication between the two of them. Yeah, so already we're seeing a significant change here, likely, in my opinion, related to how he's feeling about himself no longer being employed, right? Because what he has studied, it's really hard to find a job in that area now. She's this breadwinner, you know, she's an anesthesiologist. She's making great money. <laughs> but instead of this sort of woe is me attitude, he kind of leans into it and is not looking for work. And this becomes a thing that they start, you know, having some conflict about letting her provide for the family. And then it seems like he really leans into his religion even more, especially involving the children, which that was the one thing that they weren't necessarily aligned about. You know, she was comes from a Christian background. He's obviously Muslim. And they were trying to sort of navigate that path a little bit more neutrally, it sounds like. Yeah. But, you know, I think we're seeing this. This is just a huge trigger for him and how he's deciding to handle this. I think by the end of the episode, we really see this was well planned by him. So eventually they move forward with a separation in 2013 with an agreement for joint custody. Again, agreement, right? And the situation is manageable for a period of time on both their parts. They're on their best behavior engaging with their kids appropriately for the purposes of this shared custody. However, again, Ahmed is no longer happy, makes that very clear. She even says something where it's like, he was just sort of interacting with me as the mother of the children, like almost just, I don't know, painting her into a corner of this very one-dimensional person in his life now. Which is pretty different from how they started out because she describes the beginning of their relationship as you know, sort of adventures that they would go on, yeah, and like that sport, he was this kind and loving person. And then suddenly, you know, something shifted. Yeah, yeah. So he he then also makes this hard turn into the more traditional aspects of his religion with a focus on the more hard conservative life outlooks, likely including you know, some of the old school and archaic gender ideation based on beliefs about male versus female roles. So, you know, like you said at the beginning, the audience is kind of left with a little bit of that information to make these inferences, but it's pretty clear that this was at least a big shift for him. Yeah, it sounds like it. So he schedules a trip to Canada with the two kids and the intent being to visit the family cousins that live there. And unfortunately, he did not return from that trip. And it was determined that not only did he not go to visit the cousins in Canada, or they were lying for him, but he also emptied out his house. And then Rebecca finds out later through the FBI that Ahmed had taken the children to Turkey. 
after taking a survivalist course, visiting a shooting range, and purchasing an entire array of gear and clothing for camping. So like you said, clearly there's planning going on and has been for some while. I mean, I wonder even about their, the kids had to get passports unless they were already taking the kids internationally, right? Well, they probably had passports because they were going to Canada for the weekend. So I'm guessing that was already in place, but you know, they, they do have this FBI agent who was assigned to the case. And she's saying like, you know, he was clearly planning on sort of on foot crossing country lines over there because why else would you need sort of this survivalist training? So, you know, how terrifying that is to think that he's taking these two kids in tow across (sighs) war-torn countries. Poor kids. But there's this really heartbreaking scene where Rebecca learns through her friend. So Rebecca's stuck at work and she tells her friend when she can't get a hold of them, like, go by his house and see. And the friend tells her the house is cleared out. There's no one there. There's nothing left in the home. And Rebecca's the only anesthesiologist at the hospital on staff. And she talks about going in for a procedure and she's just like bawling in tears. And the rest of the staff is asking her like, are you okay? Should you be working? She's like, I just have no idea where my children are. It's awful. Mm, that's heartbreaking I know. and stresses me out to hear it. Like it does. you're the only one there. You have this moral and ethical duty totally. and yet your children, oh, that's rough. But a year later, she gets an email from Ahmed or ostensibly from Ahmed. And it basically the message is you left me no choice. Basically he's implying that he did this in order to get the kids away from her before she could get full custody. Because at some point, probably he realized she's the breadwinner. If she decides to take full custody, she can do it. So for some you know, mental gymnastics reason, this was what his solution was. And so Rebecca hires private investigators who are able to work with some of the information from the FBI. And after she's worked on this for months, they're able to track her daughter's iPad signal to a location in Turkey near the border of war-torn Syria. She received a cryptic unidentified email that she believes was sent by Ahmed that stated the children were safe and now living on a farm. The email address was found to be connected to an IP located at an internet cafe in a small city known as Hatay. So there is also mm-hmm. some side information that Ahmed's parents lived on a farm. So it's very possible right. that... He could have taken his kids to the place where he grew up, but nobody's giving her information. At this point, it seems like there's just been real dividing lines drawn and no one's giving her support from his side of the family. Yeah, not at all. I mean, she even talks about calling his father in Egypt right when she can't get a hold of Ahmed at all when, you know, still she thinks that they're just in Canada. And she said his lack of concern made her realize that he knew everything that was going on because he wasn't even concerned that his grandkids were quote unquote missing. So yeah, I mean, the, the trail kind of ends there with no ability to locate the kids. She says, you know, basically she would go over there herself, but she's been warned against that because it's completely unsafe. And what good is she if she gets some charges trumped up on her. Now she's in a prison in Egypt or Turkey. So she does what she can. She, I feel like she takes what power back that she is able. She continues to write them every single day. This was really, again, just another heart-wrenching moment. I've worked with clients that for whatever reason can't see their children. And this is something we talk about doing, you know, writing them often, stashing it in a box, you know, hoping that it's some 
day you can give it to them and they know that you've thought about them all this time that you've written these letters. It's It seems like this very therapeutic process for her to sort of have this pseudo relationship with them at whatever age they are. I thought something that was also notable and refreshing to see was the again, the female FBI agent who has her case, you know, she was really in a lot of scenes on the verge of tears herself. And that was refreshing. You know, it was sad, but it was refreshing to see a law enforcement officer who is talking about a mother's loss, who is probably a mother herself, and just seeing how this impacts more than the direct immediate family and victims and, you know, some of that vicarious trauma that we've talked about and how that can impact folks that are working in the criminal justice system. But, you know, essentially we have a man that, yeah, decided to flee with his kids to Turkey for fear of losing them in a custody battle rather than, hey, how about you find some work? You can reinvent yourself, be an agreeable co-parent and, you know, at least get joint custody with them. And this is what he decided to do instead. There were so many options. I, I, I know. That's why I wondered if this ties into overvalued belief systems. We can come, we can circle back around oh, to yeah. it. But, you know, what is it that they say in all those trainings that we go to is that one of the most scary factors in a makeup of potential threat is an empty vessel. When yep. someone is just open, you know, and look, if your life has meaning and direction and purpose, you're finding that meaning through your work, through community, through family, through any number of factors. But if there's a big deficit there and you're going looking and you find mm-hmm. something that says, hey, I've got all the answers for you and all the answers are basically your wife. I mean, or all the problems are basically <laughs> yeah. your wife, you know, not too good. Yeah, I, I think that could very much be something that was in play here. And, you know, you talk about this unresolved feeling at the end of these stories. You just kind of the best you can do is hope these kids are happy and healthy, you know, with the information that they know. And I I think they alluded to, you know, the family friend said, I wouldn't be surprised if he told them that she was dead. So they just kind of move on with their lives and don't go looking for her. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens because unless he purposely brings them up in a completely rural area and and cuts them off from the outside, outside world. I mean, Netflix is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's internet cafes everywhere, right? I mean, they, the kids, if she has enough bandwidth on her IP address and the the website and the Facebook page, you know, they may very well figure out what's going on. But yeah, yeah. really a disturbing story. And then we have a second one that is disturbing and actually, well, not, I wouldn't say more creepy way, but like there's some, there's an element to this that is also really disturbing. And this story part two is about a second generation Indian family now living in New Orleans. So this is about Abdul Khan. He was married to Rabia Khalid. And while the relationship was in Initially full of socializing and planning for their future, Rabia was often described as having a very strong personality. And Abdul shares that she was very upfront, direct, and somewhat demanding in telling him and his family what she wanted. I mean, this is somebody yeah. that... You know, we can flip that to positive that this is somebody who knows who they are. They know what they want. But in this case, it seems like there were some problematic personality things going on. Yeah, I I feel like these were the first red flags. And when you're hearing like from him, but also from his sister and they're saying things like, yeah, she's very direct. She knows what she wants and she'll demand what she wants. And then the sister, you know, says you got the feeling that you never really knew who she was like she she was very guarded and that's bad then you start to he yeah then then you start to hear him talk about these patterns of like trouble with jobs like she would constantly quit jobs because she was getting in tiffs with people there and you know there's 
I'm starting to get some flavors of some unregulated personality disorder stuff going on with her. Well, that's a really great example you use from the documentary. And when someone, if someone can't hold a job, that's a big deal. Because of interpersonal stuff? Yeah. Because of interpersonal stuff. I mean, not necessarily incompetence. I mean, that's a whole other thing or not being trained or not, you know, there certainly there are all sorts of challenges. But if someone is always quitting and going from job to job and they've always got an excuse how it wasn't their fault, it was yeah. that asshole manager or that BITCH I worked with, then what's the common factor there? The common factor there is the person that's getting booted from the job or quitting the job. So while Abdul reports that their marriage was initially pretty happy, particularly at the birth of their son in 2010. Rabia was reported to have significant trouble getting along with her in-laws, which is very interesting for a number of reasons. But the couple began experiencing a lot of marital conflict and they separated in 2014, although it's reported that Rabia made it seem like she wanted to work on their marriage. So it was a big shock when she comes back and she serves him with divorce papers. And and the reason that I brought out that thing of conflict with in-laws is like, Despite everything that we just said about like an indicator of personality issues, in-law conflict can be very challenging. And it can also Mm -hmm. be very challenging for multi-generational families that may have only been in the country for one to two generations. And they're trying to adapt to having adult children that are straddling two worlds. So I just wanted to put that as a caveat, although that absolutely does not justify at all abducting a child. It doesn't. But, you know, I mean, not to say that other couples that have been here for hundreds of years, like they still have (laughs) problems with their in-laws too, right? No, completely. I, I think there is, you know, having several Indian friends, both couples and women, you know, I, I've, heard the struggles of culturally, you know, what's expected and friends that have married into Indian families and, you know, how that, how they've had to navigate that. So I think there could be a lot of different things going on there. Again, I fall back on the context of, it sounds like Rabia had a lot of issues with people in a lot of different environments. So, so yeah, so they divorce by the time, or she serves them with divorce papers by the time their son is four. She decides to move to Atlanta. You know, she says she has family there that can help and he's in New Orleans. So technically not that far. It sounds far in my head, but you know, they have this arrangement for weekend visits for a time. And then The divorce is final and Abdul is actually given full custody of Aziz and Rabia immediately makes horrific abuse allegations. Like that's her immediate reaction to him getting full custody. And as appropriate, the court looks at these allegations seriously, conducts a full evaluation, and then the court date comes to have really full custody returned to him again after all those allegations were unfounded and been deemed, you know, to be false. And Abdul is, he wasn't allowed to see his son through these entire like evaluations and allegations and all of that happening. So he's been away from him for a good period of time during this investigation. And these last court proceedings that are supposed to happen, it's revealed that Rabia has remarried to this man, Elliot Bourgeois, who I think they all went to school together or something like he had sort of known there was some connection. Yeah. 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 So she kind of rekindles something with him as she's splitting with Abdul and he starts attending these court dates with her. They even act as their own lawyers for proceedings. Like after they've fired lawyers. I mean, (laughs) also like, can we talk about that for a moment? Cause I feel like we see this 
I'd love to see research on people who act as their own attorneys, because I feel like we see it so commonly with accused offenders that really have a big narcissistic streak to them. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's it's narcissism, pure and simple. And narcissism, yeah. and, and usually, you know, there can be brilliant people who are also narcissists. Sure. But this is clearly someone that did not see they weren't doing themselves a favor. And, pro right. and that's another thing, too, about firing the attorneys or the attorneys quitting. Sometimes we hear about, oh, I had to fire my attorney. Mm, no, your attorney dropped your ass because they saw you were crazy, <laughs> right. especially a private attorney owes you nothing. You know, maybe your public defender does, but not your higher gun. Yeah, it's it's like there's this overarching theme of like, well, I know what's best. So I'm the only one that can defend myself. I don't know. Wow. Well, she really shot herself in the foot in that. I found it really interesting in the documentary. And look, I, I have to say this with a caveat, because many times when documentaries are done, one thing can happen with trying to create visuals is they may only mm. have a handful of photographs. So they have to use them over and over again. Or even sometimes, you know, even though it's a documentary, it may be very well be that the director or the editor drives the narrative by selecting mm. a handful of photos. But that being said, the photos that are used in this documentary of Rabia are interesting. There are tons of selfies that are not in any particular context except for self-presentation. And I'm going to explain what I mean. So each time these photos, it, it could be that she's getting ready to go out because there's a lot of makeup. There's a lot of hair. There are a lot of filters. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing else in the picture that is contextual. It's not like, hey, I'm out with friends. We've all got big grins on our face or I'm spending time with my family. We're having a wonderful time. It's this sort of like almost like a match.com selfie or, a, you know, a dating yeah. site selfie because the arm is held really high. She's looking up into the camera. It's got a lot of makeup on. She is not smiling in any of them. Very, very, very true. interesting. I did not think about that. Hmm. So I don't know if these are in and of themselves particularly significant. They're significant to me in viewing what's being presented to me, which may very well have its own drive. There may have been 600 other pictures of her and they decided not to use them. True. So. I don't know. But the court finally decides that Abdul is going to get custody of Aziz, like we said, but Rabia never shows up with Aziz in November 2017 for that handoff that was going to be directed by the court. And as Abdul desperately and as Abdul desperately begins looking for clues as to their whereabouts, he finds out that Aziz hasn't even been to school on that day and in the last couple of days. And then he also discovers that Rabia and Elliot, her now husband, they have cut off all of their social media accounts. They've disabled everything. Yeah, it's definitely was planned as well. They just couldn't take another loss, it sounds like, and they knew what was coming. But, you you know, again, his sister has such great insight when she's interviewed and she says she she sums up like the tornado of emotions that were happening with them. And she said it was devastating, horrific, but it was also just confusing. Like how how is this the resolve or the fairness that should happen in a situation like this? And she says, we thought she was crazy and vindictive, but we never thought she was capable of something like this. And, mm. you know, it just speaks to hope. You know, you feel like things are going to shake out in your favor and in the fair way. It's very sad. Or you or you hope that people are going to actually have a moral center or a values driven yeah. center where the child is important. And clearly in both of these cases, that's not what happens. Something else takes over, you know, or just whether be scared the of the criminal justice system, you know, the consequences. What the hell? 
Yeah, especially in this one, in this case with Rabia, like she's got a new husband, so he falls for it. Like you're going to throw your whole life away for this person who says we have to steal my child away. Now, that's even where it goes. I get into what you were saying earlier about that sort of element of delusion. Was Mm. she able to convince him we have to do this in order to protect my son from these awful people that have been abusing him and the court system's not going to protect him. So this is the only possible thing that we have to do she sold him on something clearly right and now even to this day they're still missing no evidence of where they currently are so just with the first version of unsolved mysteries the hope is that the viewers may provide information that they know about rebecca downey and ahmed's kids as well as abdul and rabia's child Aziz and, you know, whether they see these children, whether they see these perpetrators, you know, hopefully getting the information out there. And I I like that at the end of this episode, not only did they show their pictures, but they also show pictures of a ton of other missing kids and devote some time, some airtime to that as well, even stories that they didn't cover. For me, I think the, the hardest part of these documentaries or these two stories were as the parents are recounting the last time they saw their kids. And for both of them, it was basically a, you know, something they had done with them several times as they're giving them over to the other parents, putting them in a car, you know, giving a kiss goodbye, remembering those moments. Abdul says that, you know, Aziz basically says, how many days till I see you again, dad? And he holds up, you know, five fingers and that's how they would always count it down. And it's just like, they, they probably did those moments so many times, heartbreakingly so, like having to to not see their kids for a few days, but not also not knowing that it would be the last time. It was very, very upsetting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm worried about all their kids, all of the ones that we're talking about today. And, you know, the decades and decades of examples that have existed of this phenomenon occurring, which is just really, really tragic. But I have to say the ones that I feel like are in immediate danger is Aziz. Me too. I feel feel like he's, he's really... I think that this show is going to cause so much exposure. You know, like Amina, mm. Amina and oh, Bilal. Sorry, hold on, let me, so let me say. So Amina and Bilal ostensibly are with extended family members and with their dad. And while that system is clearly going to have an effect on how they feel about relationships, I mean, it's definitely sure. there's going to be some stuff planted there. I mean, it, and we could go on for days about that. I get really concerned about Aziz. Because when you have someone that is disinhibited and has strong characteristics of personality disorder, and they feel like they're in a corner, Mm -hmm. that's when things get bad. And one of the examples that I would use, we were just discussing this the other day, is Dear Zachary. You know, when someone feels like they are backed up against the wall, what kind of actions are they going to take? So folks, if you're, you know, please keep your eyes peeled all over the country for, for this kid. Yeah, I feel the same exact way. And then I also harken back to, I just killed my dad. Like these kids are going to be adults one day. They're going to figure it out in this day and age. You know, he tried to keep his child closed off from the world and you just can't do that to a certain point. So like, then what, you know, what is, what has, okay, you won. So you've had custody and, you know, maybe your kids are going to hate you as adults when they find out what you did. And now you, they've been a topic of unsolved mysteries. Just does not end well. well. It doesn't end well. And just in case anybody was wondering, let's just make sure that this is very concrete and transparent. No, you cannot remove your child from the presence or care of another parent with the intent to prevent contact unless there has been a legal 
judgment put in place for this action and it requires a long process. So let's just be clear about that. So what are some of the alleged reasons or motives for this type of behavior? There are actually a lot of them, many of them driven, of course, by some of the psych issues that we've discussed earlier, but just throwing, uh, we got a, a bullet list we're going to throw out to you. Yeah. The abducting parent cannot process their frustration or challenges within the relationship. So they have to get very black and white and they have to view the other parent as bad which means mm -hmm. if that parent's bad, I've got to rescue my kid from that. So it is this warped altruism that that emerges. They may be in fear of losing custody or visitation rights, and it's just all that's all. It's like, I want my rights. I want it the way I want it. I don't want to be flexible, so I'm going to take this action. They may be motivated by revenge or getting back at the other parent by taking away something that the other parent values, which is that child. And it is possible that the abducting parent is removing the child from real physical injury or emotional harm, or a perceived or imagined or misinterpreted threat of emotional or physical injury thought to be perpetrated by the other parent. I apologize for that long run on sentence, but again, it's that sort of cloudy area of delusion. There is the possibility that a child is being abused. And there have been some very high profile cases that have been covered on 2020 and Dateline where mothers have escaped because they've had yep. to get away from some guys that have come across as pretty sketchy, I have to say. Sure. Oh, yeah. But, you know, again, I, we, like I said earlier, it's always going to be best to use the legal system to your advantage instead of taking yes. actions that are going to have lifetime of repercussions. Yeah. And I think that's usually what happens. Like they'll take off initially just to get out of harm's way and then sort of follow through in the ways that they can after they lawyer up or protect themselves how they how they can. We also see sometimes that the kidnapping parent may fear the value system, beliefs, or behaviors that the other parent may have. Therefore, the environment that the child is exposed to is the thing that they're sort of removing them from. Again, possibly real, maybe possibly false or misinterpreted in that case. And then there are also cases where an abducting parent never intended to involve the other parent in raising their child. So they just feel justified in eliminating the presence of that other parent by abducting the child and just taken off like this, this, you were never meant to be in our lives. So it means nothing to me. And then there's also the unhealthy desire that an abductor may have to instill dependence of the child on themselves, like making themselves more important. And I kind of see this, I, I see threads of all of these in these cases we've covered today, but with Amina and Bilal, you know, you're, you're going to be solely dependent on me in a completely different country that you don't even know how to navigate. So let's talk about some of the statistics about child abduction as of 2022. So the short-lived milk carton phenomenon is very far in the past, and it was much more brief than anybody remembers. But today, depending on what state you live in, you may receive an Amber Alert on your phone, letting you know that a child has been abducted. And if you've ever been in a crowded office, when the oh, Amber Alert goes off, it is yes. wildly unsettling. <laughs> I bet on your floor with just like cubicles, it's probably yes. been crazy where you're at. Yeah, there's three basic types of child abduction, stranger abduction, abduction for the purpose of raising a child, like baby snatching type situations, and then parental abduction. Unfortunately, child abduction is a type of crime that statistically is more common than people think, even with the presence of the true crime genre of entertainment that's out there. And 
as our example show today, the majority of perpetrators are not the creepy predators in the shadows, but it's the person that's entrusted with the care and safety of the child. So although it's not the stranger danger stuff that's as prevalent, it definitely is real. I mean, these numbers are so unsettling, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's easy to get swept away in sort of the myths about who and why children go missing. It's less sinister than the news would have you believe, but most children go missing because a non-custodial parent has picked them up and not returned them. Right. And like you said, while stranger danger is very real, it's just not as real as we've been made to believe. It's more horrifying and, mm -hmm. or maybe it's more acceptable to think that a stranger would do this. So that's what drives right. our narrative because certainly you, you don't want to think of a loving parent as doing this, but every year, approximately 8 million children are reported missing worldwide. And in the US, 2,300 children are reported missing every single day. Yeah. And those are just reported. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. I mean, many are found relatively quickly. Standard procedure is to search that house with the parent is you, if you're a responding officer, because yes, kids are definitely found hiding in closets, <laughs> you right. know, to great relief, of course. But since that is the case, that would still count because the parent called it in as a reported missing child, even though it might be cleared pretty quickly, you know, they might not be put into the, the nationwide database that quickly, but you know, the, the report's definitely outweigh the bad outcomes. The majority of cases for missing children were girls and teenagers are the most common age group. So although we hate to hear that, you know, the police automatically assume that a teen girl ran away, the stats support that this is a common occurrence, but obviously we want to have each case taken seriously and investigated thoroughly. Parents are accountable for over 90% of those abductions and strangers abduct less than 1% of missing children. And in 2020, in the United States, almost 400,000 minors were abducted. Now, that's interesting in contrast to Europe. A child is reported missing every two minutes, with Turkey having an abduction rate of 14.86 cases per 100,000 people. And that is shocking. And only about a third of the missing European children are being found. So the first three hours after the abduction is the most crucial for finding a child. Thankfully, in the majority of the abductions, 99% of children safely are returned home without any kind of injury, any harm, any impairment. And while more rare, the phenomenon of stranger abductions has statistics that are even more tragic because only about 57% of those children make it back home. The majority of child abductions by strangers are perpetrated by men and perps of stranger abduction will kill their victims in 40% of the cases. So that's wow. where it gets, ooh. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just interesting to see all these different facets of this one mm -hmm. type of behavior. Right. I just saw a news story today. A woman was reunited with her parents. Her mom called, actually put out an ad for a babysitter. And this woman snatched her 51 years ago. And she just got reunited and was fine this whole time. But- Oh my gosh, it's just, you're right. There's, there's so much variety. Each one of these types of abductions could be a whole psych episode that you and I do on our own, not to mention <laughs> attached to a documentary episode. Absolutely. There's even more stats and let's consider that. Let's consider doing a full, cause we've talked about, I just killed my dad. And mm -hmm. then these two examples, yeah. but there's, we can really drill down into divisions of the drives. And I think I'm so glad you kind of, really honed in on it. 
in the majority of these parental abductions, it is narcissism. It is It may be someone who doesn't come off as a narcissist, but comes off as a victim and like, I've got to protect my yeah. child, but underneath it is a drive of narcissism. So messy. So yeah. messy. Well, it was a good watch. At first I was like, hmm, does Unsolved Mysteries count as a documentary? But I think it absolutely does after doing this episode. <laughs> yeah, I gave it four brains. I think in one way, it was great that it showed two stories that are contrasting in the demographic makeup, which is really cool. But I wanted more information and I know there's more information out there on those cases. So that's why I'm going to ding it a little bit. What about you? Yeah, I'm going to go 3.5 brains. I thought it was done really well. I'm glad that it got this platform because I don't think that these stories make for the most exciting types of documentaries to watch necessarily. But man, this like hooked you in and just sitting back at the end and watching these other pictures and names of abducted kids who are taken by parents. It gives you a moment to be mindful and reflect on this and realize just how often this does happen and how heartbreaking it is. Because sometimes I think if we think parental abduction, our mind just goes like, oh, this is just a nasty divorce and you have one like a whole parent. But these really give some layered context to these stories yeah tough stuff and i'm not even a parent so i'm I, mm, i'm sure yeah. that the people that are parents out there like this this probably hits differently thanks folks for listening in on this really disturbing subject again highly recommend this entire season of unsolved mysteries it's got a lot of fun spooky stuff as well so give it a chance and we will see you next time on la not so confidential bye folks bye We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.